Welcome to the Powder Keg Podcast, Episode 2, with Jeremy Roche, CEO and President of Financial Force. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, founder and CEO of Verge, a community of tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent growing high-growth businesses outside of Silicon Valley. And my mission during this episode is to share with you the very best parts of this conversation I had with Jeremy Roche. I know you only have a limited amount of time and energy, and I'm so, so honored that I get to spend this next 30 to 40 minutes with you and our podcast guest today. You have your own personal powder keg of raw talent and abilities, and I see it as my job to help introduce you to the guides and strategies to help you sharpen your skills, as well as learn some new tips and tricks as we explore these stories today. This episode is brought to you by Developer Town. If you're a business leader trying to turn a great idea into a product with traction, DT is for you. Developer Town works with clients ranging from entrepreneurs to Fortune 100 companies who want to build and launch an app or a digital product. They're able to take the process they use with early stage companies to help big companies move like a startup. So if you have an idea for a web or a mobile app, or you just need help identifying the great ideas within your company, go to developertown.com slash powder keg. Again, that's developertown.com slash powder keg. And stay tuned at the end of this episode because we have an awesome interview with one of their clients, Scott Humphreys, who's going to talk a little bit about his own entrepreneurial adventure. And it actually relates perfectly to this conversation today with Jeremy Roche. Jeremy has made so much progress in his career and has achieved so much. I really enjoyed meeting with him face-to-face at Dreamforce this year. That's Salesforce's big user conference. And what's really cool about the way he built Financial Force is that he actually built it on the Salesforce platform, which gave him a huge head start and an amazing partner as he grew and scaled his technology business. Now, we also talk about some other unique things uh, to Jeremy's leadership style, including some things like goal setting, a process that he calls people casting. And I think you're really going to enjoy just how genuine and authentic Jeremy is because he is not your traditional big tech company CEO. It really shows in the way that he has this conversation and the way he leads his team. So let's get this thing started. Here's Jeremy Roche. We are here in Dreamforce 2015, and a lot of exciting announcements happening, a lot of excitement. Obviously, Financial Force uh, is a big part of that ecosystem. Um, I'm particularly interested to talk to you because it's clear that you have a lot of executive skills and a lot of executive experience. You know, having IPO'd two companies in Europe, having bought, sold companies, um, and now, you know, having gone from 2010 with only about 20 employees to now present day over 600 uh, employees. I know you just announced another fundraising round of, what was it, 150 million? 110. 110, 110 yeah. okay, oh, only 110. <laughs> Yeah, that that that's a, that is amazing. The amount of growth that you've had. But what I want to do is take it back to the early days because yeah, sure. I, I know you mentioned um, that you didn't get your start necessarily in in the business world in the classical sense of executive training. Uh, can you can you maybe take me all the way back to your first real career or job? Because you used the word earlier, unemployable, <laughs> um, and and I, I would say that you probably highly employable. <laughs> Uh, but you've just never tried. Yeah, it just never tried. Exactly. You haven't really had to do the whole interview thing since back in early nineties, maybe right, before yeah. that. Yeah. So talk, talk to me about that. What was your first uh, job where you got a taste of sort of this 
entrepreneurial world? The first job with a taste of the entrepreneurial word was um, probably my first job after I'd done some work for IBM. Um, I went into what was uh, the emerging world of software. Yeah. So for anyone that's kind of my age, the world of System 36 and System 38 in the IBM world. And was that something that piqued your interest or my, it was... Yeah, well, I first, got, I first really got involved with technology when the PC was launched. Okay. Um, my first claim... Only, only when the PC was launched. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, in the days where it had a green screen on top and one floppy disk drive. Wow. Uh, my f and uh, I, w I, I did technical stuff when I started and my first claim to fame was I was one of the UK's experts on building batch files to boot PCs up. <laughs> where you had 64K of memory and you had to load everything in the right order in order that you could get a network loaded and a word processor and stuff like that. And was that trained to you by IBM, how to yeah. do that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's partly trained, partly learned, because we were, you know, we were right on the cutting edge. Um, there were manuals for how you, know, how you piece the stuff together, but there weren't manuals for how you went to a customer and took what they wanted to do and then made it work in this whole world where people were going from a green screen to their first a device that had processing on the desktop. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I got hooked on technology at that point. Okay. Um, you know, what you could see was that technology was going to go through a massive shift. You know, at that time, yeah, I couldn't predict how much of a massive shift it would be, but I knew that I was looking at something that was going to be part of the future. And uh, I was, when I was doing that, uh, it was actually a colleague said to me, before you tie yourself into, into a career in, in, in the big companies, why don't you take a look at what people are doing in this new world of software? Yeah. I thought, oh, software, you know, I've only ever done hardware so uh -huh. far. Was it intriguing to you or was it almost a turnoff? Like, why would I, why would I touch software when I'm... Well, it was, intri it was intriguing because you, you could see that hardware had been all important, you know, you know, when I grew up, we had a you know a Commodore 64, or a, you know we could play Pong on a. You, you could see the hardware started it out, but then what were people going to do with hardware? You know, where was it going to go? And then you could see, well, people need applications. You know, yeah. applications are going to be the future. You could just see because as as processing power was being passed out from the mainframes to the mini computers and the PCs, software was just becoming more important. Yeah. Um, so I took my first job in uh, in software, and I went into marketing and sales. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, so because I, I can't program. Well, you know, I've had a go, but I'm not a good programmer. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> well, I, I mean, getting that early um, sort of exposure to technology probably gave you a huge leg up when it came to marketing and selling technology. Yes. Did, did you take to it naturally? Yeah, I think. Well, I was I. Because I was genuinely excited about it, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can build that enthusiasm around what you're creating and what people around you are creating and how you then take that and explain it. So, of course, software at that time was, you know, just the, you know, the app world was just starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a whole new community, new market, um, and you could see that this was going to be the, you know, the start of the future. Uh, were people really excited about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people are scared because you, you know, you're going, you know, in those, you know, way back then, you're talking about the world that's driven on mainframes, and now people are talking about distributed processing. Yeah, you know, and people are used to data centers with water-cooled kit in them, and <laughs> yeah. you know, people are talking about sticking it on the desktop. 
Yeah. You know, for some, that was a massive change. Um, but what you could see in that, it was the start of the change that leads all the way through to today. You know, it's, it's that start of the movement of you know, applications being something that run the world. Yeah. And I think that's what really made it exciting to me. Well, you know, it's, it's clear, you, you mentioned the excitement and, and the enthusiasm and, and that being an important part of being a leader. Yeah. I, it's clear that you still have that enthusiasm today, you know, these decades later. Um, it, talk to me a little bit about the, the negative side of enthusiasm. You know, sometimes you see leaders who are enthusiastic, almost beyond, um, uh, beyond being to the point where they're um, measured and still making decisions yeah. based on data <laughs> and based on you know consumer feedback. Yeah, can you talk to me a little bit about that and, and so, how you manage that yourself? Yeah, so so I think there's there's, there's different levels of managing that. Um, the first thing is you know when we were chatting before, I said to you you know business is all about people. Yeah. Okay. So one of the great measures for me is customers. Okay. So. I've spent most of my day today sitting down with customers and prospects and listening to their stories. We, uh, we ran on Monday, we ran what we call our community day, which is like our customer group, okay. but we do it as community. So our customers lead it, we listen, we help, we talk, and, and they give you great measure. Mm. You know, are you delivering for us? You know, have you delivered what you promised you deliver. And you do that all qualitatively? Uh, we do it you, qualitatively and quantitatively. Okay. Because I think there's, both are important. Right. Um, because you want to take measurement. So, you know, every time we answer a help desk call, we'll fire out and say, give us a mark on, on how we did it. Yeah. Um, every time we win or lose a deal, we analyze it. But you can't just have quantitative data. You need the narrative as well. So I'm a big believer in reading narrative and listening to narrative. Mm-hmm. Because if you listen, that's what allows a customer or an employee or a partner to, to, to interact with you. Yeah. Okay. I think the other part of enthusiasm, I think, you know, I think Sandy will attest, I like to set lofty goals for everyone. Um, and I think you need to set lofty goals because otherwise, you know, you're not going to reach them. Yeah. Okay. Give me an example of a lofty goal. What, what, what's what, a well, recent goal that you've had and, and accomplished that? Financial well, process. when we, 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 we set the target to, to last year, we set ourselves the mission of doubling our headcount. Wow. Okay? And that was investment across the whole business. And how many were you when you set that goal? We set the goal at we were 200 and 220, 230 people mm-hmm. at the start of 2014. Yeah. And we went out of the year with nearly just under 500. And my guess is that wasn't just an arbitrary... No, it was goal. no. We no. We you built. Knew a, you needed the people. Correct. So what we had was a plan, right? Because plans are predicated on people. So in financial force, we do this thing called the people cast. Okay. So you have the forecast and the people cast. Okay. I like that. So if in order to set numbers for the business, mm-hmm. you set your goals, and then there are two things that allow you achieve it. There's mathematical probability and physical probability. Okay. Okay. So the physical probability are things like, you know, can I win enough deals? Can I look after my customers? Can I implement enough? How do I actually make sure that happens? And, you know, you can't win every deal. Right. So you can't, con- you can't control all of those factors, but you can control your mathematical prob- your probability. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? So if I'm going to achieve this number, there's so many, so many leads we can generate, so many opportunities. We need so many people to close those deals. 
so many customers will come in then so you need uh, partners and financial force people to implement okay and then when you're managing those many customers you need customer success and support and everything else that goes beyond that and to the side you have to invest to build the product to allow you to achieve that stack and that's the mathematical probability that's the bit you can control and then you can take that and you can go and try and achieve your corporate goals out of it well that makes a lot of sense and it might be uh, you know a little dense for pe people who are just starting their first company but I think it's important yeah. for, for entrepreneurs to understand that this is how you should be thinking whether you're at a 600 person company or you're at a six-person yeah, company. Yeah, we were thinking like we were thinking like that when we were twenty people. Yeah. Because if you think about, I'm twenty people. I'm going into two thousand and ten. What are we going to try and achieve this year? So if we're going to achieve it, you can't say I'm going to go and you know sell X million dollars of new subscriptions. Yeah. And then employ two salespeople because physically, the mathematical probability of doing it is zero because. Those people can only work so many deals at once. Yep. You know, a consultant can only handle so many projects. So even when you're starting out, you know, the, the key is setting the goal, but being realistic about it. So you yeah. set a big goal, but be prepared to turn the knobs underneath to allow for the fact that if you set a big goal, you might not always make it all the way. Sure. Yeah. Sure, but if you're, if you're planning along the way and hiring the people. Hiring the people. Through the people cast. The, through the, yeah, take the people cast. Match it to the forecast, yeah. and that what's allowed, that's what allows you to do it. I think you mentioned also people getting you know, sort of lofty goals that might not be realistic. Right. I, I, I had a moment relatively early in my career which taught me a really valuable lesson. Um, and uh, I, was, I was running, at that time, I was running products and services for, for one of my businesses. Okay. And... Um, I went to a review meeting to look at some new product we were building. And I said, guys, uh, I didn't really, I, I couldn't conceptualize how we got to the solution we'd got to. Mm. So, um, so I said to the team, guys, let's take a step back here. Just walk me back through the discussion process we went through to get to this solution. Because I'm, I'm figuring we've missed something out. Why did, you know, how did we come up with it? And everyone was really quiet. And um, so, well, come on, you know, there's no blame here. What, what, what's going on? <laughs> they said, well, it was your idea. I said, okay, great, it was my idea. So when I came up with that idea, did anyone think that it was maybe a bit of a strange idea? And somebody said, yes, <laughs> but you're in charge. So we figured we'd better go do ah. what you told us. Taught me a very, very valuable lesson at that point, which is always making sure that everybody knows that, you know, I am not always right. Uh, how do you do that? How do you empower people to... We, we, have, we, we, have, we have company rules. Okay. Okay. Company rules that are all about people. That sounds very big and corporate and scary. No, it's, they're not big <laughs> and corporate and scary at all. Okay. So, so the first one is that no one should ever suffer in silence. Okay. In any business I run, it's never going to be a sign of weakness to ask for help. Right? In my world, that's a sign of strength. Yeah. So if you're going to build a team, you need a strong team that's all supporting each other. Okay. Absolutely. Um, we have departments in our business because we've got to that size now. However, in financial force, the worst thing anyone can do is say it's another department's problem. Okay? Our goal and one of our corporate mantras is we will do great things as one team. Right, so politics and department arguing is stuff that old-fashioned businesses 
yeah. do not co not connected businesses yeah okay no so, one wants to work in or lead one of those companies absolutely but too many companies are like that yeah and if you don't always focus on making sure it's not happening sometimes people naturally fall back into old ways and you and you don't want that to happen because otherwise you, it creates negative energy people are wasting their time arguing with each other instead of going and doing things for a customer. Have you experienced a, a corporate culture like that personally? Um, I've seen it, but not in any business that I've run. That's good. Um, because I just believe it's, it's, it's just not the right way to run a business. Yeah. Okay? Politics kill businesses. Yes, absolutely. Right? And arguing kills businesses. You know, people working together is what makes a great business. Um, so, uh, and so those, those are simple rules. And the other rules are management will make mistakes. Yeah. Okay. The trick is if you make a mistake to recognize you've made it and fix it, not to try and brush it under the carpet. Because <laughs> right. you can always learn something from, from making a mistake. Yep. And the other rule is Jeremy is not always right. <laughs> right? So I believe that anyone should be able to, to ask me, why are we doing this? And I should be able to explain it and discuss it with them. Yeah, because if I can't, they might have spotted something where we we might be a little bit, you know, off the beaten track. Can you talk to me about uh, an example of maybe when uh, a decision that you thought was the right decision was checked by someone on your team I can, and, and, I can, and I can, saved I can, saved your butt? I could give you plenty of examples. <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, I can. I can tell you that I thought uh, we. Sh I I got it into my head that we should go international earlier than we probably should have done hmm. and uh, my management team said hey Jeremy didn't we all agree that we were going to stay focused um, and it was the right thing to do to stay focused otherwise I would have diverted people's energies yeah um, I saw an opportunity that maybe we I thought we should take but the idea of having strong people around you is you you know they remind you to stay true to your goals yes you know because yes. having goals and sticking to them is really important do you have personal goals that you set um, within your own role um, at, at the, as the CEO of Financial Force? So, so my goals are really about making everyone that works for Financial Force successful. Yep. So that's what, I, that's what I see as my job. Yeah. Okay. Making sure customers are successful and employees are successful. Okay. You know, in my world, if, if I build a successful team of really strong people, that's what lifts Financial Force up. Yeah. Okay. And it's what allows it to succeed. So my goal permanently is to make sure that I'm supporting people. It's, you know, leading is sometimes and often about supporting the people around you. Mm -hmm. If you can make everyone on the team successful, that makes me successful. Sure. But it also means that people are bought into the team. You know, if you've, if, if, you, know, you, you probably see this in a lot of businesses. People move every two years, move jobs every two years. And if you're, uh, if, you know, I remember when we were small, we couldn't afford to have people move every two years because, yeah. you know, you take a new employee on, it's going to take you, what, six months to get them fully productive? And then... Another the, six months to make up for that first six months. And then they might stay for another six months or 12 months and then they move on to, to, to somewhere new. Yeah. So that's not great investment for us as a business. It's also not great investment for the employee because every time they're going back to, to being on a, on a ramp again. Yeah. Whereas if you can build careers with people and make them successful, that's, that's what keeps people with a business.
Are, are there things that you do with, uh, with your own team in a regimented way that has kind of continued to drive that growth of your team? So, so, so if you look at um, my management team, we all have different views and we all have different opinions and that's, that makes it healthy. Yeah, that's good. But we, are all, we all believe the same fundamental thing. We all have that belief in people and in the success of the customers. Mm -hmm. So whatever opinions we have that are different, that we can debate around the way to achieve it, mm -hmm. we're all very firmly on the, on the same road together, you know, on the same journey. And you know, some of the people that work with us today in Financial Force, I've worked with for 15, 16 more years. So, that, so they've come with us on that journey, not just through the financial force journey, which was back end of 2009, but even yeah. before that. Okay. So people are following you along in their careers. Yeah, and I'm following them too. It's not, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a two-way thing. Absolutely. You know, if, 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 I, I love that you reframed it that way. Well, yeah, if I believe people follow me, then, you know, it's, there's, there's, you, if you become the kind of arrogant leader that just assumes everyone will follow you, then actually they don't. Yeah. Yeah, what builds great teams is, is people working together, yeah. people supporting each other. Like I said before, yeah, we all go through times where we've got too much work. If we're, you know, we're overloaded. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to turn to the people and say, hey, I need some help. And you need to help each other to get through that. Yeah, that's great. I think that's so important for first-time entrepreneurs and, and leaders to hear. Because well, especially if you've not got, if, you, if it's your first management gig as well and you're not, not sure where to be. I think... You know, I think the other thing is people being true to themselves. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, you, you can't come out of character because people will spot you eventually. Sure. You know, how, so. how have you managed to stay true to yourself throughout everything? Because I, I imagine, you know, with two IPOs, you know, several acquisitions and, and sales um, of companies and with the growth of, of financial force, there have been times when you, you could potentially be not true to yourself because it looks like the right thing to do for the business or for financial gain in the short term no yeah i think but, but if you do that then what happens is people see right through it and it undermines you yeah yeah so you, you you need to make the decisions that are both true to yourself and right to the business and if you're a leader and you build a business and you build a team in your style mm -hmm. making sure they don't all think the same way as you otherwise you can kind of you know you don't get the great challenges there yeah but People that are working to the same belief, if everyone's got a clear goal, everyone's understanding where they're going, um, then it does keep you on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I, I, I love your approach to leadership and the way that you've built financial force. And I want to make sure, uh, I want to, one, be respectful of your time. No, that's fine. It's, I'm, but, I'm, I'm good. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> but, but two, I, I want to make sure we talk about financial yeah, force. Yeah, sure. How, did, how yeah. did you come up with that idea? What, was it... Um, and I know the answer to this already. Was, was it all you, or like, how did you pull the? Was idea? it all me? <laughs> no, it was not all me. I'd love to claim all the credit, but no. Sure. So you started um, the company in the UK, right? So, so, so the history of the company. We actually, it was uh, my previous incarnation, but one was a company called Coda. Okay. And so we were a public company in the UK. Uh, we focused on accounting and financial management systems. Mm -hmm. um, now. With that business, we, we, because we were focused on a very clear business area, 
we'd always try to um, emerge the business each time with each refresh of technology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the world of green screen went to client server, went to web, went to XML. And uh, we started watching, in fact, what Salesforce were doing. Okay. Salesforce created originally, if you remember back, it was called On Demand. So it was... I don't remember. Right, so, so, it, so, the, 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 so cloud, if you roll cloud backwards, it was cloud. Previously, it was SaaS. Yeah. And before that, it was On Demand. That's right. Okay. Right? And even before that, even before the world of Salesforce, then there was the ASP world, the application service providers. So we'd watched uh, Salesforce, and we were a customer of Salesforce. We'd watched Salesforce creating this category called On Demand. And we thought, hmm, you can see, just like back in my System 38 days, you could see that uh, On Demand was going to be the technology that businesses would use in the future. Yeah. Okay? It was the next incarnation. So we thought, hey, would... Well, I couldn't see, but you could see. Well, yeah, because it's like... Because <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I have to say. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, even, even today, the next... You know, we, the Internet of Things is coming, and you know, the, the nature of technology is always going to change. And that's what, that's what keeps me energized. Constant, right? Yeah. So, so we decided that um, the future was going to be on demand. Um, and we were work, trying to work out how to get there. Uh, and a small team of us working together on it. And uh, the girl that was leaving it from the marketing end, Liz, said, look, I'm fed up of talking about this. I'm going to go and ask Salesforce what they think we should do. So, yeah, okay. So, so, <laughs> so, so Liz went out of the meeting, picked up the phone, rang Salesforce and said, hey, any chance that you'll uh, you'd give us some pointers as to how to do this on-demand stuff? Yeah. Because at that time, you couldn't go out and buy those skills in the market. Sure. You know, we were trying to work out how we were going to build a multi-tenant engine. And we'd never done it before. Yeah. And there were no courses on how yeah. to do that. No courses. You couldn't. Uh, so Salesforce surprisingly said, yeah, sure. You know, send a team to San Francisco and you know, we'll give you what they called On Demand 101. Wow. Um, yeah, they were smaller in those days. What we year got, was this? It's 2000. It was early 2007. Okay. Back in the 2006, early 2007. Yep. Uh, so we sent a team, and Salesforce whiteboarded it all up for us. And after they'd done that, we'd you know, written it all down. After they'd done that, they said, but do you really want to build this platform? And we said, well, no, we don't want to build a platform, but how are we going to build this product otherwise? And they showed us then what was to become the basis of the Salesforce platform and said, hey, you know, could you build on this? And so we tried. We did a prototype. Uh-huh. We tried to build um, what is at the heart of the financial force accounting system. So if you're not an accountant, this isn't going to mean much. But <laughs> the heart of it, heart Wait, of it is how, a how double we... entry bookkeeping system, okay. which is very transactional. So debits always equal credits. Yep. Salesforce's platform was built for CRM, and it, it wouldn't do it. So Salesforce said to us, hey, well, if you tell us what it'll take so you can build if we commit to to do that will you commit to build on the platform and that's how we started our relationship with salesforce okay financial force came well uh, let, me, let me pause ahead. There yeah, sure 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 because i, I want to hear um as a ceo at that yeah. time leading that company yeah. you you had a decision to make hmm. do do we want to you know basically build something for salesforce 
Yep. Or we'll do go, something else. Build on our own, which probably yeah. would have been easier, right? Because then you're not relying on an entire other team. In some ways, it could have been easier, okay. yeah. Talk to me how um, you like um, thought through that decision. We looked Salesforce in the eye and we looked at what they were doing and we looked at the people who were doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we talked to Parker Harris and Steve Fisher and the, yeah, these people were clearly, they understood exactly what they were doing. Now, they understood it from their world, which was about building customer-facing apps. And traditionally, where we'd come from, it was about building back-office apps. Yeah. Okay. So they, the, 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 the difference there was what style of application you're building. But they were prepared to listen to what we wanted because they wanted to build a platform that would support any sort of application. So they were prepared to listen to us. And we could see something in this platform. And there's a couple of things we could see. The first was that it had the potential to be a world-beating platform. Okay? Potential. Potential. Okay. And so what we were wrestling in our minds was, um, and, and me from you know, so leading the company at that point, yeah. am I prepared to, you know, to take that risk? And we evaluated it as a team and, and you know, I, I looked at it very hard and I actually worked out that although it looked risky, we were actually minimizing our risk by going down this route, mm. providing Salesforce stuck with its commitments. So we sat down with Salesforce and got them to commit hard that they would deliver for us. Wow. Um, and what that did essentially is it allowed us to start building application a lot faster. You know, if you look at what we use from Salesforce, we use Salesforce's you know, platform, database, the workflow engine, chatter. You know, you saw a bit of the keynote, you know, lightning, wave, all those Salesforce technologies that they're building, we get to consume. Yeah. Um, and we just saw that earlier than a lot of other companies. Um, and we're prepared to, 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 to take a ride with Salesforce. Uh, it and look like at it now. It's gone pretty well, yeah. Well, I think you have to, you, you know, you, sometimes you, you need to you need to actually judge something on its merits. There were people, uh, and you know, some of the industry analysts thought I'd gone stark crazy <laughs> when we announced this thing. Really? Yeah, they said, you, you know, what are you doing? Are you, are you giving up control of your underlying platform? And did you second my, guess it? Well, my 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 view was always whatever technology you build, if you build, if you're a tech company, you are committing to a technology. You, you can't just pick up all your applications and port them somewhere else. Right. Because yeah, you've committed in some way to using that technology. Sure. So in the case of Salesforce, we were committing to the, the underlying technology. We just got a bit more. We got a business logic layer. Yeah. So what's the difference, really? Yeah. And it allowed us then, the thing that's made financial force financial force and allowed us to really emerge with the applications we wanted to build. Mm-hmm is we took our back office and we built it on a front office. Okay. So if you think about Salesforce front office, our apps are embedded right in the middle of it, which means that we don't have a back office anymore. It's yeah. all front office. So everything we do can be focused around a customer. Yeah. So you know, the, that true view of a customer, right from I've sold them something, I've delivered it, I've done a project, I've done an invoice, I've collected the cash, all of that revolves around the customer. And that makes the Salesforce platform even more unique than the technology that underpins it, in my mind. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's powerful, and I can see how that aligns with your uh, belief that it's it's about the people. Yeah, yeah. You take all that picture, and you do that for customers. You you basically unlock for them their ability to have all of their employees focused on their customers. Yeah. You know, because you don't have to email the accountant and say, "Hey, has Fred paid his bill?" You can see on the screen whether Fred's paid his bill or not. Yeah. Yeah, so or the person answering the support call can see what opportunities we're selling and what invoices we've sent, and you know, why not unlock that information to a, to a business? Uh, that's a uh, good question. It's a, it's a, it is a good question. Why why wouldn't you? Why do wouldn't that? you want to do it? Yeah. yeah, and and what you see here, and you know, you know, the growth around this community, and look at the size of Dreamforce now. These are all businesses that have worked out that they want to unlock those things that have often been siloed in their companies yeah. to empower their employees to make better decisions, to better serve their customers and better work with each other and collaborate. Yeah. And that's what's firing this growth. Well, it's, it's something to consider. And it, it, we were talking about this before we hit record. It's just amazing that Dreamforce has really started almost its own economy uh, where you know people who are playing in that economy are, you know, currently it's an up market in yeah. the, uh, in the, in the uh, Salesforce economy. And this annual conference is, is an example for people to see we, all. We were remembering back to our first Dreamforce. Oh, yeah. Um, when, 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 we, when we launched and uh, there were five of us on the stand, <laughs> um, uh, you know, doing the demonstrations. Because, you know, that, that was, we were a small business at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, now I think uh, just manning stand, manning the buildings that we've got here. So excluding all our sales team here, we've got over 200 financial force people actively working Dreamforce in one way or another. Oh, that's great. You know, and then you look back at that and say we, we, we were sharing those, those five people are all still here. We were sharing photos. Oh, of that. Really? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's so great. Well, you, uh, if, if you still have photos, I would yeah, love we'll get, to. We've, we've, maybe, we've still got photos from that. Maybe we can link that. them up or something in the, yeah. uh, the show notes. Well, I, I, could, I could probably dive in for an hour or two just on how you guys do Dreamforce, how you do conferences, and, and, and make all of that work. But I, I also want to make sure that um, we save something for later. Okay, and, no problem um, at all. And I really appreciate your time. If people want to find out more about you, uh, about Financial Force, uh, where should they go? Right, so well, they can the Financial Force website, financialforce.com. Yeah. Um, I'm at Jeremy underscore Roche on Twitter. I could do with some more followers. Hey, is that, is that? Sure, sure. <laughs> well, well, we will definitely be tweeting, tweeting you out. And um, I, I, I noticed that uh, in your Twitter bio, you says you have a, a healthy uh, taste for maybe a little too expensive British cars. Yeah, that's my what, only weakness. What are you driving around these days? What's your so, favorite? So, or well, my favorite, I have a, a Land Rover, a Defender. Oh, okay. You know, so, yeah, yeah. A, the long wheelbase one. I don't think they ever really, I've never seen one in, uh, in North America yet. Oh, really? See the short wheelbase ones occasionally. Yep. Land Rover Defender, that's my favorite. It's, a, it's like driving a truck. Okay. Um, and I have an Aston Martin. Oh, nice. And Very so, James Bond of you. Well, you've got, I mean, you know, You've got to hold some of that British heritage somewhere. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, it's, it's great. I, I'm so glad that we were able to catch you uh, while you were here. It was and, great to uh, meet you. It was uh, great to talk. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And, and I do hope we get a chance to talk again. I hope so too. Thanks so much. All right. So I loved talking to Jeremy Roche. What he's doing with Financial Force is so inspiring. And to see the way he hitched his wagon to a big enterprise software company to help him grow his own big enterprise software company is just so inspiring. 
And one of the things I loved is just the way he's built his culture. So, Nick, what did you think of, of this interview with Jeremy? I loved his uh, focus on being transparent, um, and especially as a leader, just you know, looking to the people around you to to be transparent, to be brutal at times, like about you know being super honest about what's going well, what's not going well. Um, and that you know that reminds me of when we were talking with Scott. Just uh, the when we've worked with him, Scott Humphreys, he's a uh, project lead at an internal startup inside of Johnson Controls. So really, really, really big company. Uh, and he's, he's helping lead efforts for an internal startup. Yeah, we met him on the last episode. That's right, yeah. So Scott is just the same way. It's, what am I doing well? What's going you know, poorly? Um, how can we improve? Like, he's, he's great, which is what you really need when you're trying to do something as ambitious as really run a startup inside of a large company. And so continuing on his entrepreneurial story, uh, this is him talking about how to remain entrepreneurial even when you're in a big company. Being in a larger company and being entrepreneurial sounds like it could be fun from the standpoint of you actually have resources, you don't necessarily have investors that you're beholden to with metrics you have to hit there, but I imagine it also comes with a lot of baggage and challenges of being entrepreneurial within an, uh, a larger organization. What are some of the bigger hurdles that you've run into as you've been growing your entrepreneurial projects? So I'd say one of the biggest hurdles that we've run into is how does the company align around innovation? How does Developer Town come up alongside these large organizations to help them innovate and generate new revenue streams? So we, we've been fortunate to work with a ton of startups over the years. We've worked with over 200 leaders on, on a start project of some sort. And so we apply a very similar process um, called Sprint to Market that we work with our startups on to the larger the larger companies. And so we come alongside and really look for how can we help them move like a startup. And so that often means uh, early on identifying what is the actual opportunity here, um, testing that opportunity with different validation techniques, uh, and really understanding what is the first few steps that we need to take in order to get internal buy-in uh, in the organization. Um, and as well, that process is really focused on what are the assumptions that are exposing this opportunity to the most risk and how can we address them? And so we start there and then evolve into a more and more creative, innovative approach as we are actually developing the product. It was great hearing from Scott Humphreys at Johnson Controls, a client of Developer Town. It's really cool to hear how Developer Town is working with big companies like Johnson Control to help them move like a startup. It relates perfectly to this conversation we had with Jeremy Roche. So if you're an entrepreneur inside a big company or at a startup and have an idea for a web or a mobile app, go to developertown.com slash powder keg. Check it out. Drop me a note on Twitter or Instagram. Let me know that you checked out uh, the link there at Developer Town. Uh, we love those guys. They're, of course, at Developer Town on all the social channels. I am at Hunkler at, on all of the social channels, so you can find me there. That's H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. And, of course, you can find us at Verge HQ. So Verge, the company that produces Powder Keg, is what I spend 24-7, 365, working on building this movement with all of you amazing listeners out there, the people that are coming to our events, that are getting exposure through all of our different channels, and that are learning together with us as we build tech companies outside of Silicon Valley. It's really exciting what we're building here, and I love that you were able to spend some time with us today to learn a little bit more about Jeremy Roche and the way he's leading his company. You, of course, can find him on social media at Jeremy underscore 
Roche on Twitter. He seems to be pretty active there. So make sure you drop him a note. Let him know that you listen to the podcast. And then please drop us a review, drop us a note. Let us know what interviews you want to hear more of, what you'd like to explore in the next episodes or the next wave of episodes. And of course, go check out the Verge VIP newsletter. You'll get exclusive event invites, global exposure opportunities, and curated education. So sign up for free at vergehq.com slash powderkeg and join the movement. I'll see you in the next episode. 